Are you ready? Yeah, sure. Thank you for joining us on The Change Artist, where we bring our listeners stories and great advice for leading and following through change from business leaders who are making a difference in their organizations. I'm your host, Alyssa Cox, and here on The Change Artist, our motto is, if change is the only constant in life, let's do it better. And this week, we want to continue our conversation on measuring change and how we talk about the degree to which we've been successful in driving our desired change. My guest today is Zhu Wu, a postdoc researcher in STEM education at UC Berkeley and the author of the recent paper in the Journal of Diversity in Higher Education, Change Mapping of Models to Diversify STEM Faculty as Practiced by Alliances for Graduate Education in the Professoriate. And she's here today to share with us her perspective on how we should think about understanding sustainability and scalability of our change initiatives. And Zhu, that paper is actually how I first learned about your work. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in diversity in STEM education. What makes this space particularly interesting to you? Yeah, of course. So um, since my grad school, almost all of my research projects have been about diversity in STEM. I'm really interested in studying diversity in STEM because I think myself have experienced what it feels like to be a minority. I mean, uh, being an Asian doesn't make me a minority in STEM, um, but uh, being an Asian and international student makes me a minority in you know social science research in higher ed space. I have been the only one, or you know, one of the few in many spaces and. And also, I remember, for example, being in high school and doing well in, you know, math and science, while hearing someone might say, oh, you're good at math and science, but you're a girl. Being a female in those spaces uh, makes you a minority. So I can really relate to those who come from stigmatized backgrounds in STEM education. And um, I really want to apply what I've learned, you know, in grad school in learning science and in STEM education to advance diversity in STEM. And when we look at this space, I think we can all acknowledge that there has been change in the public narrative, but how do we go about actually measuring change in this space and understanding if we are actually making strides to increasing diversity in this space? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, um, we all know that change is always kind of dynamic and um, can manifest at different levels. For example, um, in higher education, change can be measured at the individual student level um, or at the organizational level. And I would say the effectiveness of change is kind of a relative. You know, we, sometimes we observe change in performance, um, in mental health throughout an academic year for an individual students, and we call that a big change. But if we look at this at the organizational level or at the institutional level, it might not be as salient as we hope, you know, to see that kind of change. Therefore, I think like scale is really important when when we think about measuring change. And that's why um, in the work that you are mentioning and um, what we're focusing here, we developed this tool, what we call change mapping, which is actually a multifaceted and multi-level approach to examining change. So we look at, for example, uh, levels of change. We look at theories of change. We look at, for example, barriers to success and focus of change. So the idea is to kind of look at these different things and multiple strategies during a change 
period at the same time to really see whether um, these different elements in a change period are um, making effective change to, to our goal. And so you referenced change mapping, and I love that because I want to get into this change mapping framework. But help me understand, you know, there are a number of different frameworks. I mean, there's the change mapping framework, there's a logic framework that yep. we can use to understand change that's going on, change we're trying to drive. How does change mapping differ from other frameworks that may be out there? Yeah, so um, I think what's the biggest difference between change mapping and other, you know, large models or whatever you have referenced uh, is that we're really looking at some of the alignment or misalignment across different facets during a change process. As I mentioned, we, we look at, you know, theories of change barriers to success, different things. Um, the intention is actually to reveal like how these changes manifest as each step and to really see how does determine what is the best way to move forward? Because sometimes uh, we we focus too much on an individual strategy or intervention or practice, but we don't really see the big picture. In the context of change mapping, we we look at the organization, we look at the institution, or even beyond, we look at the the entire space of higher ed reform. And we try to see how these different elements play together to really drive the kind of change that we're hoping, which is, you know, institutional change, which is organizational change um, at the larger scale. So other methods may focus on specific initiatives, but change mapping really looks at the entire ecosystem for change, would you say? Yeah, I, I would say that. And so... What were the different metrics that you were looking at or the different factors as you looked across that ecosystem and tried to assess sort of the quality of change, the effectiveness of change? So, for example, we look at whether the theories of change and barrier to success are matched or like aligned in a specific unit. Uh, In the context of my work, we are looking at alliances for um, graduate education and the professoriate program, which is a National Science Foundation program focusing on, um, you know, diversifying STEM faculty. So we kind of divided up uh, into, for example, um, the social cognition theory of change or barrier to success, which focus on like individual students' perception and there's also cultural uh, theory of change or barriers to success, which focus on the shifted culture around us and, and our beliefs. And there's also scientific or process um, barrier, which might you know, look at the specific uh, initiatives or practices. So whether these things align or misalign with one another will allow us to really dive into the ecosystem of an alliance or the landscape um, to really see what are effective changes and where are spaces that we might want to, um, you know, dive into further. So we've got three different sort of macro categories of barriers or perceptual barriers, cultural barriers, process barriers. Am I forgetting any? Mm. Yeah, those are the ones that maybe, yeah, we we call them a little differently, but yeah, idea is essentially that. 
Are there certain barriers that we're pretty good at addressing and other barriers that are harder? Where did you see in your research, where are we effective at taking, pulling down barriers to change and where are we less effective? Yeah, I think uh, we are now working a lot to address what I would call cultural barriers uh, to success. So, you know, there's stereotype and discrimination, like what I described, like the high school experience being a girl in, in math and science. Um, so that's, that's kind of rooted deeply in our society. That is why like we are advocating for this kind of higher level change rather than change that focuses on individuals because I, I think like individual uh, focus may actually reinforce those stereotype and discrimination. And DEI in higher ed, we are actually working toward addressing this cultural barriers more and more than before because I think, you know, decades ago, lots of these initiatives would focus on, for example, you know, no child left behind, something like that. We just want to, um, you know, help those who are behind, but like defining who are behind is already a kind of discrimination in my view. So, so I think years ago or decades ago, that was the focus and that was what I would classify as perceptual or social cognition barriers. But we are at the point where we are make, making progress now. We we know that in order to really address this issue, we need to change the belief we hold in the society and, and the deeper structural issue in our society. And I think we, we are making progress there, but there's still space to uh, improve. And how do we measure progress in that space? Are people reliable reporters of their own cultural biases in your experience and in this space? Or are there other ways that you and your team go about measuring uh, cultural bias over time and cultural barriers to success over time where we can actually see see the impact of some of our change initiatives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, out there, there are surveys or questionnaires measuring, um, you know, beliefs about diversity or, you know, how you think about specific groups and biases. Um, but for us, uh, we, because our work is kind of descriptive in that we don't necessarily try to quantify these changes, um, but we kind of evaluate them in to kind of address the appropriateness of these. So the approach we took is that we interviewed um, the leadership team of these alliances and we we through our, our conversation we talk about their interventions and practices and actually we were able to see how different alliances address these issues um, you know there are ones who focus more on individual development um, but there are also others who focus um, addressing these uh, maybe like misconceptions or um, these biases from a faculty perspective. So you can think about, you know, change practices in higher ed space being classified into change focus on students and change focus on faculty members or, you know, institutions. So I would say the former ones, most times we would evaluate through surveys, questionnaires, 
things like that. But for, uh, for faculty perception, there's also survey out there, but I think, uh, you know, talking to leadership through these kind of interviews also allow us to go beyond what they think, but also why they are making these changes. And, and that's the kind of qualitative approach that we take. A little earlier, you mentioned that a hyper-focus on the individual can sometimes actually reinforce the cultural barriers to change and the cultural barriers to success that we see in the marketplace and our environments. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? Because it feels counterintuitive to me. It feels like if we focus on the individual, we can sort of make a change one individual at a time. But it sounds like you're saying that's not always the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So I think the, the problem is that by identifying who needs help, it's already embedded with a deficit mindset. So like you're you're saying, you know, you're not good enough, but what's the reference point? Like it's essentially a biased view that by marking someone as needing help. So that's what I meant, um, which can reinforce these stereotypes and discrimination because you're saying, you know, this particular group needs help, then it's kind of saying this group is not doing doing well enough. And, and that's a discrimination um, for like diversity work. The end goal is not just uh, representation, but more like equity and justice. So to, to work on these cultural barriers would allow us to move beyond uh, diversity more towards an, um, a justice goal. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We recently interviewed uh, Christy Ashwanden on the Finkbeiner test on this show. And one of the things that she said that I found really interesting was the Finkbeiner test is all about how you write about female scientists. And do you write about their science or do you write about the fact that they're a woman? And one of the things the Finkbeiner test says is we shouldn't be saying and highlighting if we're writing about the science that this is the first woman to have done X, Y, or Z, because we're pointing out that women don't do X, Y, or Z, right? Women don't achieve in this space. And wow, look at this really, really special person. And she's special, not because of the science, but because she's a woman that did it. Mm -hmm. It ties in, I think, really well to this idea that backing out and identifying categories of individuals that need help is inherently prejudicial. Exactly. For our listeners who are thinking about DE&I initiatives in their own organization, thinking about how we measure the effectiveness of those initiatives, how we understand if they're on track or on course, you know, what would your advice be to our listeners as they're trying to measure and assess the effectiveness of change that they're a part of or that they're observing? We write about our change mapping, but I I wouldn't say it's always the, the best approach or the most suitable approach for everyone who are thinking about um, measuring change because I think it really depends on your context. Although I do want to advocate for like change mapping approach, but I think um, we, we need to first evaluate if there is a need for, for such a multifaceted examination. Um, would like alignment or misalignment illuminate anything, uh, any recommendation for your organization? Because I think lots of times, depending on how long the change period you are looking at or you're trying to measure, the answers could vary. Like, 
for us, we are looking at these um, funded national programs, which usually last for a couple of years. So we were able to really map out different elements from um, the program. But like for maybe for our listeners here who are trying to measure kind of a short-term change, then it doesn't necessarily have to go with change mapping where you look at different you know axes there. Maybe um, a specific strategy or practice or intervention is what you want to really focus on because if that's making your desire change, then I think the next step will be thinking about how to sustain this and and how to you know make sure this is sustainable and can keep going. It doesn't really necessarily would involve a multi-level approach of measuring. But if the goal is to kind of really try trying to identifying, you know, barriers and theories and how these things work together, then I think I would re really recommend the, the approach that we took there, you know, thinking about organizational change rather than individual change thinking about higher level change and thinking about sustainability, scalability, I think are all important um, for measuring change. Coming out of this work that you recently published in the Journal of Diversity in Higher Education, what's next for you in this research? Yeah, sure. So um, I definitely am continuing my research in the field of diversity in STEM education. Actually, this work, uh, was developed while I was organizing the national conference for for this uh, NSF program. Um, we we had a success in the conference, which focuses on disseminating uh, the change in scalability and sustainability of change. The work is well recognized by our audience within the alliance or with, within this program and was also recognized by the community of higher ed um, in many other spaces and uh, conferences out there. And the next step, I think, uh, we have uh, talked about this change mapping approach in a different contexts for different audience, really trying to advocate using this to evaluate or you know measure or understand change for different um, contacts, I think it can go beyond diversity work. Uh, it can go beyond higher education, but because the key access for analysis can actually be context dependent. Um, and I would say the change mapping framework is based on Adriana Kizar's work on higher education reform and organizational change. But just for organization change, there are different axes or elements you can look at. Doesn't necessarily have to go with the ones we selected, which is for the DEI work in higher ed. We are hoping that this tool, we we're calling it a tool because I think it's a tool and, and we want it to be a novel tool to analyzing and understanding change for a broader community. 
and and one of the works that we are like the team, me and my co-authors and mentors are trying to do is to disseminate this work at different places and to advocate advocate this for people who are interested in some similar work. So where should people go if they want to learn more about the tool, learn more about change mapping? This work is published on uh, Journal of Diversity in Higher Education. I think it will be publicly available in June on the journal's website. And we have detailed examples in our paper, which could be a reference for folks who are interested. I'm also happy to further discuss this with individuals um, who are interested in this approach. And I think I'm happy to share, you know, references and my email address if anyone is interested in, you know, a conversation or a chat. As I mentioned, um, there are a couple of work which really had a great impact on our development of this tool. And I would highly recommend people to take a look into that. Well, excellent. We will be sure to include your email address as well as the link to the Journal of Diversity and Higher Education article uh, in the show notes so that people can learn more and reach out to, to learn more from you directly as well. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for your time here today, Zhu. It has been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's really been my pleasure to, to be part of this. <laughs>